Well, I must uh, confess a little to you. Uh, I struggle uh, reading John. I find him exceedingly challenging. Uh, and that, for the most part, is because he and I think very differently. Uh, if you know me at all, you probably know that I am what might be called a linear kind of thinker. I start at a beginning with an idea, I want to see the development of that idea, and I want to go towards a comprehensible end. Uh, I go from point A to B to C, and I hope that's what I understand, how I best approach what I call reality. John is what I might call a circular thinker. He starts with an idea and then develops it. And then he comes back, he circles back to that same idea, that same theme, and says something more and yet not anything different from it. And then he comes back yet again to wrap it up at the end, to return to that theme and to develop it yet more, drawing it to the conclusion he would like us to have a very different way of approaching reality. And all of this is to say, as I was thinking about this, looking at, again, this portion of John's first epistle, and that's what we're going to be looking at today, is 1 John uh, chapter 3 and 4. Uh, it occurred to me that you cannot understand even the passage that we read this morning. It was a long passage that we read, but you cannot understand it in its fullness until you see it in its circular section, whatever section that is. And so I found myself having to go back to last week's reading uh, because, again, even that is not yet enough for the circular passage to actually see it in its fullness as to what John is doing. And so I just want to say there is something profoundly challenging in this for us. I found it challenging trying to understand it, and then I found myself challenged by what I did understand. And that's even more profound. So I would encourage you to open up your Bibles. First John uh, 3 is where we start, but here is indeed how the section begins and ends. John says this in chapter 2, verse 28, and now, little children, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. That's how he begins, abide in him. And then he ends with the verse that we ended on, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. And so there is the reality that John is speaking to. He says, I want you, little children, to abide in him so that in the end, you know he abides in you. That's his train of thought. What he's dealing with is this wondrous reality of this covenantal relationship we have with God. This intrapersonal, um, utterly incarnational dynamic 
of God in us and we in him. This partnership, which is a partnership of life for life, heading towards life, that we are caught up in the very being of this one who has created us. That's what John wants us to grasp and to be grasped by that divine human partnership. Abide in him and know that he abides in you. It's a wondrous thing. Now, John is utterly convinced that God is the one who makes this all possible. He is the one who creates the environment where it's true. He is the one who sustains it. He's the one who enables it. But you and I have a part to play in it. He is the one in us, but we need to learn how to abide in him as part of that dynamic. That's what he's talking about. So what is the part you and I are called to play? What must we do in order to do that and therefore come to know in ever-increasing ways that he truly abides in us? And there are two things. We looked at one last week. We're going to look at one again this week. Two things, John says. We must, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, we must learn how to purify ourselves as he is pure. And then secondly, we need to love one another. We have to learn to love one another as Christ has loved us. Two things, purify ourselves and love one another. Now, again, we looked at the first last week, and I don't want to go over uh, all the details, but I do want to summarize again what John is saying and has said to us last week. Remember where he begins. He begins with our tacit knowledge, our lived experience. We know certain things because we are living certain things. And he says what it is is that we know that we have been adopted into the very family of God. We know that tacitly. He says this, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. He says, you know that. It's part of your lived experience. You who were not that have become that. We know we are God's children. Then he goes on to say, and not only that, but we have been destined, we've been promised by God that we will grow up one day to be utterly like his son, Jesus, in his transcendent glory. That's what he says. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So John says, knowing that, knowing that you have been made a child of God, adopted into the family of God, knowing and promising and trusting in that promise, your destiny is to become like him, we act, we do certain things, we purify ourselves as he is pure. That's where the motivation comes, when you know who you are. When you know what you are to become, you know what you need to do in the meantime. 
you get busy and purify yourself as he is pure. And John goes on to say, part of that is you stop with your practices of sinning. And he unearths that uh, whole idea of our ingrained habits of life that continue to shape our lives. He says, you know, guys, it has to stop. Has to stop. You have to interfere with that. Cannot go on. Now, we would have thought that John might have gone on to tell us how we do that. How do we interfere with those practices of sin? Uh, And he doesn't do it. At least he doesn't seem to do it. He goes on into the second point where we began this morning with a second great task. He says this, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And again, if we are to abide in him and know that he abides in us, this is the second thing. We purify ourselves and then we learn practically how to love one another. Now, that might sound to us in our linear way of thinking two very distinct things. You know, um, and again, I found myself, again, in my linear thinking, thinking that this week, right? Purifying myself, I, think, I tend to think it's a, a sort of a personal and private thing. What I do inside of myself, I got to deal with my stuff, right? And I think of loving one another as that sort of communal and public thing, what I do outside of myself. John doesn't think that way. John thinks in a circular way. He knows that these two things are intimately connected. Because we are not autonomous, isolated beings. We are always personal beings living in community. We are never separate from one another. We are always somehow known by our relationships one with the other. And the great reality is this, and I want to press this home because it got pressed on me this week. As you and I attempt to love one another as Jesus has loved us, our practices of sin will be exposed. They will be triggered for us. And that's the plan of God. That's how we begin to deal with the practices of sin. That's how we begin to purify ourselves as he is pure. And if you didn't think that way, you should, because he goes and he talks about the image in the story of Cain. Wonderful kind of thing. Just look at this. He says this about Cain. He says, we should not be like Cain, he says, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him, he says? Well, because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Again, I found this really fascinating this morning. Uh, John goes back not to Genesis 3, but to Genesis 4. And here is the epitome of fallen humanity. Here is where it begins to take root in each of our lives. Uh, And again, I found myself having to go back and reread the story of Cain. And you can see it's sort of beginnings of the story on the screen today. Adam and Eve, these are the first two children, we we are told. Cain is the eldest, Abel the second. 
Cain was a keeper of, uh, or a tender of fruit. He was a farmer, uh, and Abel was a tender of the sheep. And then we're told that one day in the course of time, uh, they each brought an offering to God, uh, Cain of the fruit of the land and Abel of the firstborn of his flock. And we read that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now there's a mystery here. We do not know why one was favored and the other one was not. Uh, That's speculation on our part. It's not what the story is about. What the story is about is Cain's response to the favor given to his brother and denied to himself. And we read this. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Anger was evoked within And that anger led to a despair, a depression, a despondency. And even after God intervenes in that mission and says, look, Cain, you still have a chance to do well. (laughs) Remarkable. And then he gives a warning that if you do not do well, sin, the personification of evil, is at the door. He's crouching at your heart, and he will pounce upon you if you choose not to do well with this anger. And Cain, of course, takes no heed to the warning. And we read, he enticed his brother out into the field and killed him. This is the epitome, the primal story of fallen humanity. This is what happens when you and I encounter somebody else being favored when I am not. It evokes and triggers anger. Anger at God, anger at our brother and sister. It evokes depression, despondency. It evokes envy and jealousy. And it evokes, eventually, desires for vengeance. If I cannot have it, then neither can. We are not in this together. We are opponents of one another from here on out. Uh, There is a primal nature to this story that you and I know in our gut. We know this. This is the default drive of fallen humanity. And we fall back into this over and over and over keep on wanting to challenge us that when we are triggered, when you are evoked to be angry, enraged, jealous, any of those things, see that as a gift of God. Your practices of sin are being exposed. 
and you have an opportunity to do well by them. That's the wonder of these things. We tend to want to avoid them like the plague. God is saying, come into them. Let me draw them out from you. And together we can deal with these things. Anyways, that's not the point that John's making either. But you need to understand that. The point he is making is, we no longer need to live like Cain. We can live like Jesus. That's his point. And he goes and he says that in any number of ways. It's a wonderful thing. He says we can either choose to live like Cain, falling back into those old patterns of life, or we can indeed choose now to live like Jesus. Uh, He goes this, by this we know love. He says, if you're going to love somebody as Christ has loved you, you've got to know what that love is. He said, well, this is how you do. By this, we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. That's his main point. He says, but that, folks, is a possibility now for you who have been adopted into the family. You no longer need to live like Cain, but you will if you don't do something else, (laughs) right? You can live. You ought to live like Jesus, but we have to choose now to do so. So the question comes, how do you begin to choose? Where do we start if we are going to begin to interfere with those practices of sin and begin new practices of righteousness? And one of the best places to do is to go back a few verses to see where John himself again begins this thought. Here's what he says, another of these we know statements. He says this, we know that we have passed out of death into life, all right? We know tacitly, we know in our lived experience that we have passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brothers. Because we are actually doing what Christ did for us and doing so in our lived experience. Now, what does he mean by this? It dawned on me is that he is, again, going back to our own tacit knowledge. Uh, And I go, it's our lived experience. And I want you to do a thought experiment with me. If you have experienced the grace of God, and I pray that all of us have, but if you have indeed experienced the grace of God for the first time or for multiple times, it doesn't really matter, can you go back and just be in that moment? Overwhelmed by grace. Overwhelmed by the love of God. 
knowing that you who do not deserve it are utterly and totally forgiven. You got it? How overwhelming that is. Remarkable. Go on. Think again how easy it was for you to love in return. How easy it was now that you have been utterly forgiven to forgive your neighbor for doing that little thing. Out of the love that we have received, we were able to love, and we did. We did. Think about that. All those petty little things that you were resenting, you no longer resented. It was gone in that moment because you had been overwhelmed by the grace of God. You were loving your brothers and sisters. Then take it a third step. Remember how life-giving that dynamic was. How much joy you found in living in that way. Are you tracking with me? We know that we have passed from death into life because we love our brothers. John says, you know that. Now choose to live in the light of that. Choose to live as Jesus lived towards you, loving you sacrificially. Choose to do it even when you're not overwhelmed by grace. Choose to do it simply because you ought now to do it, that you need to choose to do this even when you don't feel like doing it. Do it when it's costly for you to do it. Do it when your Cain-like nature even has been triggered by the circumstances that call forth your love in this way. That's what John is saying. Starting from what you know of your experience of the grace of God, make a commitment to now to live in that way, come what may. And you will be abiding in him and knowing that he abides in you. That's what he's saying, I believe. Now, he says a whole bunch of other things, uh, really important things, but I just want to highlight this one key thing. Hammer it in, because I really think this is profound, and we need to grasp it. His big argument is this. If we know, and again, in that knowledge that bypasses the head and goes into the heart and the gut and the lives, our bodies, if we know what God has done for us, how he has adopted us into the family of God through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, how he's adopted us into his family, how he has uh, destined us to share in the glory of his son, to become fully and utterly like the transcendent Jesus, and how he is in presently even indwelling us now 
We have a foretaste of that by the indwelling of his own spirit. If we know what God has done for us, then we must choose to live in the light of it. Choose willfully, intentionally, actively to live in the light of it, to live uh, from within this family, to live towards this destiny, to live by and with that indwelling power. But we must do the choosing and we must do the acting. God has made it possible and we get to join him in the dynamic. That's what the Christian life is all about. That's John's big point. Abide in him by purifying yourself as he is pure, by learning to love your brothers and sisters actively, sacrificially, uh, when it's difficult to do. And you will know that he truly abides in you and is actively helping you, enabling you to do what you were created to do. That's his big point. And it is utterly, utterly profound. If we know these things, choose to live by these things. <coughs> Abide in him, says John, and you will know that he abides in you. What say you? What say we? Will we hear John's encouragement? Will we act on what we know? Let us pray. Just take a moment and respond.